I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I was three-fourths drunk. She looked uptight. She took off her wheel, took off her bell, took off her wig, and said, how do I smell? I hot-footed it, bare naked, out the window. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about I Shall Be Free, the final song from the Freewheeling Bob Dylan, is fellow Bobcat Brian Lukach. Hi, Brian. Hey, Rob. How are you? I am doing great. It's uh, nice to have you on the show. I really appreciate being here. It's a lot of fun, and I'm excited to uh, to kind of share uh, my Bob history and uh, some some thoughts and, and fun views on the song. Yeah, this is a this is a real fun <laughs> song, and there's <laughs> there's a lot to say about it. Considering it seems seems so freeform, and of course, for some of you, if you just listen to the words I quoted, you're probably wondering what song is that because that doesn't really <laughs> seem to match the song that's on the record. But we'll get to all that uh, momentarily. So, because Brian, as you said, this is your first appearance, so I got to ask you, how'd you become a fan? Yeah, so my my, uh, my journey uh, with Bob has been a long one. Um, I'm uh, I think much like you are a uh, it came of a musical age and the kind of the musical dustbin of the 1980s. <laughs> um, and uh, which, you know, that has its own sets and circumstances. Um, but yeah, I had, I had three musical influences in my life. You know, my dad who really uh, instilled my jazz love, uh, my older brother who, you know, brought a lot of that kind of eighties punk vibe of uh, Lou Reed and violent femmes talking heads, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, last of the one who really kind of, kind of brought me to Bob was my uncle Danny. Um, and, uh, yeah, he instilled that love of classic rock and, um, you know, that whole genre. Um, and incidentally, one of the, and the roots of it, his, uh, his, his best friend growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee. I was a guy named Howie Epstein. And in 1982 wow. for a lot of guys, uh, a lot of guys who kind of follow Bob and follow Tom Petty kind of probably know at least who Howie was. Um, but he, he was asked to join Tom Petty's band. Uh, which was uh, was pretty cool. He joined as a bass player um, after uh, stints as um, I think he was in John Hyatt's band and Del Shannon. Um, and for yeah, for guys in Milwaukee, you know, nine, ten years old, this was this was a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, somebody kind of of your own, especially you know, it was, it, me specifically, it was it was kind of it was pretty close, you know, to my uncle and our family. You know, kind of entering kind of the rock canon. Uh, with a pretty, you know, a band that's now MTV starting and you're just kind of seeing him on TV. It was just really cool. I remember the Long After Dark video that first time. We're like, whoa, we, these, uh, there he is. Um, <laughs> um, and so we kind of like, you know, stepping in. And so, you know, we all became pretty invested in Tom Petty, you know, at pretty, you know, 10 years old, pretty young age, kind of getting into that. Um, and kind of watched his career arc kind of work through the 80s in a pretty interesting way, as you've kind of alluded to in a bunch of your shows, you know, then eventually later on with the Wilburys and whatnot. Um, and yeah, that, that was pretty much straight up, you know, for yeah. Tom Petty. <laughs> in, terms yeah, of, no, exactly. in terms of his career yeah. direction, that was pretty much one direction at that point. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, that was, was, it really is pretty interesting, you know, just how, how kind of that, you know, because we started with him when he was, he was pretty famous in like 82, 83, but the, the amplitude of that fame, you know, especially with um, Full Moon Fever really kind of took yeah. off. And it was pretty exciting to see and kind of how he was obviously a part of that for, for a pretty long while. Um, and, you know, his, his, the concerts in Milwaukee that Tom came to every summer, they really became a big event. And I think a lot of it had to do with the community's investment in Howie. 
Um, yeah, so, so at nine, I got into, you know, Tom Petty pretty early. And uh, my uncle was, you know, child of the 60s. And so, you know, obviously he loved Petty because his, his buddy was in the band. But, you know, he was really a Bob Dylan guy. And um, so, you know, that got me into Dylan at a pretty early age. Um, you know, Bob was kind of the holy grail and you know, most respected of all the musicians of that era, as we all kind of know it. And so Dan had passed, he passed me along a bunch of tapes, you know, at a pretty young age, like, you know, I had kind of grainy uh, cassette copies of Biograph and, you know, listen to those. <laughs> um, in fact, my, one of my first kind of vivid memories of ever hearing a Bob song was, you know, listening to that first play of Biograph. And it starts out with Lay, Lady, Lay, which was, you know, kind of the syrupy number. <laughs> uh, and then the one that really kind of grabbed me was the next cut up that comes with Rick Von Schmidt intro on, uh, on, on Baby, Let Me Follow You Down. And it's like, whoa, this just feels like a kind of this this folk house kind of moment. Um, and so, you know, I spent the next few years um, exploring all kinds of, uh, you know, Bob tapes. I got actually a 14th generation, you know, copy of Ten of Swords, you know, before I even knew what it was. <laughs> um, just because it's like you kind of have an insider in the game with your uncle and it's like you're hearing all this stuff that normally you wouldn't kind of run across. And so, but the thing back then, there's no internet. So you have no track listing. You just have these tapes of just Bob singing these insanely cool coffee house songs you know like black cross and some of these other things are just like otherworldly experiences that when you're 11 12 years old you just can't you, there's no way to connect with anybody about it though. it's just these mm-hmm. like personal mm-hmm. experiences you have is a very different time because there was you know the, the you know to some degree there's no internet there's no connectivity which i'm not not, not necessarily a bad thing it was just a very different time as i try to explain to my kids so uh that's kind of the roots of uh of kind of my connectivity with bob and then uh, you know, over the years, and as we'll get to, it's, it's grown, um, you know, pretty substantially, you know, over the last 25 or 30 years and, you know, um, you know, in a pretty big way. Wow. Are any of your, <laughs> any of your family musicians? Uh, well, my, I've actually, a lot of my nephews uh, play a lot of different instruments. Uh, my uncle never actually was never a musician himself, uh, for any means. Okay. But he just, you know, as I said, Howie was one of his best friends growing up in high school and they, you know, stayed close until, uh, uh, you know, until Holly passed on a few years back, but, um, you know, no, 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 no specific musicianship, uh, per se. I wish I, I wish I had a better handle. <laughs> it's interesting just because, you know, other people that have done the show have said, you know, oh, their father got them into it or their mother or their brother, but mm-hmm. like you had three different people in your family <laughs> that were, you know, directly were a direct line to um, your your eventual music taste, and that just that seems like a lot of music uh, interest in one family, and it just I was it made me think oh, yeah. was, was somebody a musician because that's well, just, that seems like a lot of very big music fans clumped very in one family. Yeah, no, there's well, there's a definitely a heavy love of music and just the the, the fine arts in that regard. It's just they're very different paths, you know. And I've had gotcha. the, I've had an amazing benefit with my dad, who I've seen, you know, I lived in New York for a long time, and so I saw a lot of jazz musicians with him, like Jimmy Smith and uh, Les Paul and a bunch of others while I was there, and they were still here. Wow. Um, so I've had really neat experiences with him in that regard. And as I said, with my brother, you know, his was a very kind of eighties vibe. He was actually a music writer in the eighties, and uh, so I got a lot of a lot of early stuff there. But the, you know the the unique one was, you know, just this direct connectivity with Bob was just, you know, you just, you know, it's crazy, especially when you're 10, 12 years old. It's yeah. Like the oh, fact man. that you've got that, it was really, it was a pretty neat thing. And I was just, as I was kind of prepping for this, going through some old just archives and stuff and, it, you know, a bunch of things that I've just kind of collected over the years uh, from that relationship of like, you know, an old farm aid pass from the first farm aid. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of neat things. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty unique. And, you know, when you're young in that regard, it really leaves a, an impression with you that's far more indelible than, um, you know, than when you do it at an older age. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I assume you know, you've seen Bob live, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was kind of telling up my count and going through some old ticket stubs. But I guess it's probably 25, 30 shows. Mm. For me, it's kind of been, you know, I've lived in Chicago, New York for most of that run. And, uh, you know, usually when he comes in one of those towns, I'll usually catch at least, you know, one one click of each tour. So, um, you know, the first time I saw him was uh, dating back to actually Summerfest in 1989, uh, which was a big deal in Milwaukee. Um, but ironically, the first show I really wanted to see him at, um, and I still kind of joke about it to this day with my with my with my father, um, you know, as, as we've kind of alluded to, uh, you know, the connection with Tom Petty. You know, I was uh, Tom a bunch of times and got to go back a few times, which was kind of neat. Um, but obviously, he toured with Bob. Um, and for better or worse, the one time he came through Milwaukee, uh, on, on that, on the combined tour over those couple of years, uh, I can tell you the date exactly. It was June 27th, 1986. Uh, and if they played at, uh, Alpine Valley, which is a pretty legendary venue right outside of Milwaukee, just a, just an amazing place to see a concert. Um, I didn't get to go. And the reason I didn't get to go to that concert is my bar mitzvah was literally the next morning. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going to – my uncle ended up going to the show the night before, to my, my mother's consternation. But um, he goes, you know, you got family stuff the night before. <laughs> she, he, he wasn't there for it. Um, he, he wasn't going to miss the show. He said, you might, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm already so, a man. Uh, I don't <laughs> – <laughs> So I did not end up getting to go to that concert. And I, I eventually later years later did track down a bootleg of it. So it felt like at least got to be there. Um, but one <laughs> you, you know what you were though. doing at that exact moment. Yeah, that's, that's rare. You know, that, that's, that's rare. That is, that is true. It's a pretty good excuse. But um, I, I will say one neat kind of remnant of it because of just the way that the tour logistics worked out. Um, Bob didn't make it to, uh, to the bar mitzvah the next day. Um, needless to say, but I did have actually a real live heartbreaker, uh, come for what was a very, very mild affair at our backyard. It was not a very big party. Uh, but how we Epstein did stop by, they had a, a kind of a break in the day and he was obviously spending the day with family in Milwaukee, but, uh, he came over with my uncle to say hello to the party. And I actually <laughs> stole the picture from him at my bar mitzvah party, but it was unlike the kind of celebrations here about today where you have celebrities kind of showing up and paid appearances. This was a very, uh, very casual kind of quick hello but it was kind of neat and kind of been kind of thinking back on it at the time it did it felt just matter of fact but i guess in hindsight it was kind of cool yeah oh my god i mean i would I, if i could trade having seen one dylan show to have somebody from tom Petty and the heartbreakers come to my private party i would make that trade <laughs> sure that's smart so uh yeah so i never so i guess i'll tell one other quick story it's kind of a funny one i i've, I've obviously never met bob would, would be a dream to do so it'd be kind of neat to have even a couple minute conversation with him but uh my uncle's met him a couple times, um, and the story I remember from from my childhood is the first time he met him uh, was actually at the, the first farm aid in Champaign, and uh, that was I think late late eighty five. Um, you know, and uh, Howie and, and Ben Mont and Mike Campbell and you know the Heartbreakers had done some work on uh, probably an Empire Burlesque already by then. So that was when they were setting up to play with them at Farm Aid, and so my uncle and Howie uh, Howie's brother Beach Hay uh, went down to Farm Aid, you know, for the show and. Uh, they got to meet him. And as I re- if I recall the story correctly, you know, they, uh, you know, how he brings him up said, you know, and this is like, you know, my uncle was a huge deal for him to meet Bob too. It would become like yeah. meeting him now. Um, so he's like, really excited about it. And, you know, how his brother similarly, and uh, you know, they walk up, you know, how he introduces them both to Bob. And so, you know, how his brother was a bit of a, you know, kind of an affable smart ass. If you could consider. And um, so, you know, the introduction happens and, and so BJ, how his brother says, Oh, now that you know who we are, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, apparently went over okay. You know, I guess Bob is a sense of humor. 
So uh, it was kind of a you know a funny story. I still remember you know, 35 years later, um, and uh, it was kind of neat to have. So it was, again, those kind of points of connection always kind of made it neat. Um, you know, as I said, I've seen him a bunch of times. I've had the, the pleasure to go. I've, I've taken my wife uh, to a bunch of shows, um, including a few standing room only, which for her is sometimes a struggle. She's only five feet tall. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that works okay. Uh, I went with my dad once to see Bob, which was really neat. Uh, and then lastly, um, which was kind of cool, is uh, last uh, last fall uh, for that last set of shows, uh, took my kids. Um, I Not that we knew what was coming next year, but it right. just said, hey, who knows when he's going to be through town the next time. I really want them to see it. Um, yeah, it was definitely, you know, they know the album. So it was the, the presentations, a little bit of a different style, as we all know. Um, and uh, where, where we went for the show was the, the acoustics weren't quite as, as clean. So they, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the fact they were with me. Um, I kind of wish uh, the show environment had been a little different. But um, I, you know, I mentioned I went to another show on that same tour. It was phenomenal. It's just I think a lot of it has to do with where you're sitting, where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but really enjoyed it. But by far for me, the best uh, Bob show experience, I, I really am privileged to be at uh, a couple of the 99 club tours. Oh, wow. Uh, I remember that series. Yeah, he played two shows on one night here at the Park West in Chicago. And this is back in the early days of the Internet when, you know, buying tickets online was a, you know, pretty, um, uh, you know, primitive experience. (laughs) Back then, I still remember this vividly. I went on, I got some Ticketmaster voucher code, and you had the ability to buy two tickets. So you could either buy one ticket for the early show and the late show or two tickets for one show. And I was, uh, my wife at the time was my fiance and I made the executive decision to go to both shows myself oh. and not take her. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure she won't be offended. She, you know, that was, I knew it was, a uh, it was good for the marriage. The fact that, uh, she was very supportive of the decision. So I got to see him both, uh, both shows that evening. And, you know, I remember it still, you know, your front row in a 500 person club was just an amazing experience. And then I'm looking back as you're kind of setting up for today, I was kind of looking back at the set list from those shows and I'm just it was just nuts, right? You know, it's like every song, you know, you'd want to hear with Visions, you know, North Country, Desolation Row, Willie McTell, Tom Thumb. It was just, I, you know, I, I it still is an evening that kind of sits vividly in my head, but uh, in hindsight, it's just crazy. So I've, I've been pretty lucky. <laughs> that was a bold move. That was a bold move you made. I appreciate it. Yeah, that she's, and as she's said, as I said, she's since seen him a bunch of times, you know, over the years. And, uh, yeah, I think what really got her into Bob was, um, you know, I, I, a bunch of years back turned her on to the blood on the tapes, you know, recordings, the kind of the quieter version. And that really just kind of grabbed her. So that's, she's got kind of her own, you know, uh, path within the things she really enjoys. And that, that certainly is one of them. That's marvelous. That's great. You got to see those club shows. That's yeah, it was neat. It was neat. <laughs> Did he look, I mean, you were close enough to see him. Did he look like he was sort of having a good time? It's kind of hard to tell. He's stone faced a lot of time, but. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly. I mean, he was, it's, it was just, you know, again, it's kind of this surreal thing. You're literally four feet from him and uh, wow. yeah, he, you know, that, you know, it's that kind of vintage 99 look he had going and, you know, he kind of looked <laughs> that way. Look, look, he's having a good, you know, he's doing two shows in a night, which back then he felt old, but you know, relative to you know, today, yeah. you know, might as well have been 30, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he's still, you know, and uh, yeah, that was, it was just, I mean, the venue was, it's just great. It's just everything about it. It was just a really neat experience. But even, you know, as I said, I saw him, you know, in the last tour, I, when I went on my own, I had, you know, I was like sixth row or something. It was about as close as I've been to him, you know, probably since those shows in terms of the connectivity. And it was still a different version of the same vibe. You know, it's just for, for people who are really into Bob, it's just kind of, 
being there hearing him do it is is what's what it's about yeah i i've never been within i think the closest i've ever been was when i saw him uh racking my brain here but i think the closest i ever was to him was when i saw him at the roseland ballroom which was in new york in 94 which was that night for the encore he brought out bruce springsteen and neil young which was amazing thing and that i mean just being able to see his facial expressions was that it had a whole other dimension to it because you know you normally see him you're pretty far away and again he's not Mick Jagger you know he's not <laughs> you know he's not running around the stage going crazy I mean I know once in a while he's he you know indulges himself and he does like a duck walk or something like yeah. that but for the most part he's pretty pretty you know he's just like this you know figure just sort of standing <laughs> there and you know and and you're you're just enjoying the music but it, it does yeah. really add a whole other thing to be able to and and i've noticed that even when he cracks even the slightest smile it ripples across the crowd you know people are looking oh, yeah. for that now you know and so when he looks like he's having a good time or he chuckles or he turns yeah. to garnier and garnier laughs who's he's always laughing when garnier's laughing it's people just you know they almost like they exhale and they're like oh he's having a good time too I'm having yeah. a good time. He's having a good time too. That's great. No, so, that's exactly right. I think that's that is that marvelous. Nailed it. <laughs> that, that is that is marvelous. So okay, so let's talk about "I Shall Be Free," which, as I said, is the final song off of uh, the classic album, "The Freewheeling Bob Dylan." It's it's funny to think when you look at the um, obviously this was you know the, everyone knows this was the album that put him on the map. The first album kind of went came and went and didn't really make much of a ripple, but this was the album. This is an album with at least a half dozen of some of the greatest songs in his catalog, the greatest songs in anybody's catalog. But it's, it, when I was looking through it again, uh, I was was sort of reminded of how heavy freewheeling is (laughs) despite the, (laughs) despite the title, which is, you know, freewheeling and the album cover, which is Bob and Sue's Rotolo in the snow and they're having fun. He got, he looks impossibly young, but they look like they're having a good time. And then you look at the song list and it's like blown in the wind, Girl from the North Country, Masters of War, Down the Highway, Bob Dylan's Blues, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, Don't Think Twice It's All Right, Bob Dylan's Dreams, Oxford Town, Talking World War Three Blues. I mean, it's like <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it's just heavy. And then you can see that he takes a swift right turn and tries to lighten things up a little bit with the cover of Karina Karina, which is really beautiful. Yeah. And then Honey Just Allow Me One More Chance, which is him just goofing around. And then the ultimate of him goofing around, which is I Shall Be Free, which is just, for, for, by the way, I, I forgot when I looked at this song. This song is almost five minutes. It doesn't <laughs> feel like that. It, it yeah. feels like it goes by so fast. But it really is Bob just goofing around. And it really did, I think, uh, obviously uh, set up a, 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 another angle, another side, if you will, of his persona yeah. uh, as, as it was forming in 1963 that, yeah, this guy was very serious and could say these very important weighty things talking about the world and whatever. But yet he could also slip into that Woody Guthrie, Luke the Drifter kind of persona where he was just kind of dicking around a little bit. And this song is four and a half minutes of him just kind of being goofy and dicking around. I, I, it's almost like we coordinated because I had a lot of the same thoughts um, hmm. that I was thinking about in this regard. And uh, what, you know, I, I kind of thought about it. So Freewheeling was the first actual Bob Dylan CD or album I ever owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought it you know, for two reasons. I bought it because, you know, I was at the record store. I just bought a CD player. It was like, you know, first year I was probably 14. 
you know, and had, as I said, I had Biograph and a bunch of compilations, but I never actually had a Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan album. <laughs> ah, okay. And I picked out this one, and I picked it out for two reasons, right? Because one, the first song's Blown in the Wind. Right. Boom. And then the second was the album cover, which I know is kind of romanticized about, but it, it, it yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was like, whoa, this is, this is, this is the guy. Um, and it just, it had this, you know, this kind of evocative kind of vibe to it that just like, this is the album I'm going with. Right. Um, and, uh, so you, to your point, Rob, you, you kind of work through it and there's, you know, it's a weighty album, you know, it's like just boom, you know, he's a, a songwriter's kind of mastercraft here. I mean, he's got three or four songs on this album that any one of those, and that's, that's somebody's entire career yeah and peerless he, just peerless yeah, songs 21 right 22 years old he's, he's pumping out flowing in the wind masters of war i mean hard rain is just <laughs> oh right and that's on an album and then you know to your point you kind of you know north country don't think twice i mean they're all oh those are kind of the the, the theoretically second level songs i mean again those would be you know amos lee would do would kill to write one of those not to knock a you know, guy like that he's phenomenal but you know that's for bob they're like oh yeah those are kind of the you know fourth and fifth place <laughs> Um, and then, so you go through this and I, the way I kind of described in, in the best way I can remember hearing the first time I ever heard I shall be free was the first day I bought the album. Um, is it felt you, you kind of alluded to, it almost felt like dessert after a long hearty meal Yeah, yeah. of and an intellectual meal where you're just consuming just, uh, just these heavy, heavy, heavy topics that carry so much emotional weight and, uh, you know, and some people's personal weight. And then he kind of closes it. And the irony with what we'll get to with I Shall Be Free is at the time you first listen to it, it just feels like candy. But then you kind of dig into some of the roots into it. And there's, there's a little bit, you know, it's candy, but there's, you know, there's a little bit of edge there. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, which, yeah, which is what I, you know, in hindsight, I really appreciate about it. And, uh, yeah, again, it's still, it's not hard rain. You know, we're, it's not, we're not going to rewrite history here but there it's an interesting one to talk about because there's a lot more to it than you initially feel but the first time i ever ever heard it the thing that i really loved about it is you kind of alluded to it's five minutes and it doesn't feel like five minutes and it kind of has i don't know if you listen to mumford and son the, the the song the cave but it's one of those where the song just revs up and gets going and by the end it's like he's gone from you know speed one to speed four mm-hmm. and this song kind of has that same type of vibe to it maybe not quite as pronounced but uh, where as he kind of moves along, there, there's just, you know, the, 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 the kind of the pace and speed of the song really just kind of fetches and uh, it just, everything about it, it just, it, it just, it feels like a lot of fun. It just left me with a lot of impression at the time. Um, and as I said, it within freewheeling, um, it, it's an inter- it's a very different kind of end to an album versus, uh, you know, like farewell on the next album. <laughs> um, you know, it's definitely a different vibe of closure, but uh, it, I think it fits appropriately for this album, at least in in, in my view. <laughs> yeah, I agree that there is, and again, we'll get in, we'll get to it in, in some of the further lyrics there. But yeah, there is there is some asides that he's making, uh, which seem to underscore the themes that he's been hitting in the other songs, but just in a goofier way, not quite so serious. Uh, it's it kind of it 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 feels like if you if you scan through the album, you can mm-hmm. sort of see the the um the 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 approach changing because again blown in the wind hard rain uh masters of war very serious you know completely serious and then you get to oxford town which is one of my favorite songs of his which is talking about something incredibly serious yeah. you know and yet it's the most lilting upbeat fun ditty 
You know, I mean, it's just like, it's yeah. this incredible hummable song and it's only like what, like a minute 45 or something. Yeah. And yet it's talking about murder of civil rights uh, activists. Yeah. You know, you're like, what? And so you're like, wow, like, can you do that? Can you talk about like, like well, yeah, you can, you, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't all have to, it's not all sturm und drang. It, it can, it can sound upbeat and fun and yet still be saying something serious. And then you're going on here and he's getting that even further. So, yeah, I quoted the opening verse, which, as we will again, we'll talk about, does not match what he sings on the record at all. So the second verse, he says, "Well, sometimes I might get drunk, walk like a duck, and stomp like a skunk. Don't hurt me none, don't hurt my pride, because I got my little lady right by my side, right there, proud as can be. Eyes out there painting on the old woodshed. When a can of black paint it fell on my head, I went down to scrub and rub, but it had to sit at the back of the tub, cost a quarter." And I had to get out quick. Someone wanted me to come in and take a sauna, which, first of all, doesn't rhyme. <laughs> you know, it doesn't rhyme. But, I mean, um, one of the things I was sort of shocked to learn is that he took, like, this was like, they did like six takes of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can hear a couple of them. I listened to one of them uh, over on, on YouTube. Um, and I, from what I think I read, this is the one that's on the record is take two. But I was kind mm-hmm. of amazed that he could find the energy to sort of screw around like this over the course of six takes. That seems like an enormous amount of focus considering yeah. this song seems so, so, so goofy. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And um, I, I've heard three and a half, I think that I had somehow, um, you know, the various bootlegs I've came across over the years. One of them was a, a compilation called seven years of bad luck. And that had, I think three or four versions of three and a half versions. I think it was wow. a half started version and three others. And to your point there, and at one point he makes kind of a reference is like, Oh, I forget, I just can't check my notes or something like that. <laughs> to your point, it was almost like you hit it spot on. And, you know, he's just kind of like, uh, just this things just bouncing out of his head. Even if he doesn't have the notes in front of him, um, in a way that's just, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, it is, you know, kind of alluded to heavy because, I mean, you know, you're on kind of verse two, um, I mean, sorry, in, uh, verse three, where it, you know, it had to sit in the back of the tub. Back of the I mean, tub, clearly, yeah. clearly an illusion here. And this is kind of where a little bit of the roots of this song, I maybe, maybe take a pause and kind of mention that. Um, what I didn't realize, um, uh, you know, when it first, when I obviously first heard it 35 years ago, but um, I'd forgotten even since I'd read it and, um, uh, Tim Riley's book a, a while back was that, uh, you know, the roots of this song were came out of actually two different folk songs, um, both called um, uh, We Shall Be Free. Right. Lead yeah, Belly. And, yeah, yeah. Lead Belly. But that with, I didn't realize until the last couple of weeks that that actually was a uh, kind of a um, uh, kind of a retort back to a uh, more, of a more of a Jim Crow era version of it um, by uh, by uh, Bill and Bell Reed which came from like the 1920s or 30s, which was, uh, uh, I, I've actually not been able to track down a, an audible copy of it. That was a decidedly racist uh, kind of folk song of uh, kind of a hillbilly folk song in the 1920s and 30s uh, called We Shall Be Free, which um, uh, was was kind of mocking the slave experience in a, in a pretty awful way. Oh, and Lead Belly came back, heard that and said, well, let's flip this on its head uh, and came back and really came back with a, a very sad satirical uh, response. It's the one that we all kind of know. Oh wow! Okay. okay. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't know that either until the last couple of weeks. From what I understand, and as I said, I've not. That apparently that version was supposed to be released on a kind of companion to the uh, Ari Smith folk anthology uh, series, but then, um, and I was just seeing this even this morning. Uh, that was supposed. To, that was released uh, last summer, but then they. Um, and this is. This should tell you how um, how 
potentially got off on offensive the original version was is as they were looking to release the the original version uh in that companion uh box set series they decided to pull it from the box set because they it was you know especially kind of in the wake of the last year just how people kind of really kind of uh, uh kind of rethought about things uh decided it was just it just felt a little too, you know, inappropriate, even if, even if, you know, viewed as a historical record, they said, no, we're, we're not going to release it there. So I've not been able to find a copy of it, but it's, huh. it's clearly, you know, it was clearly offensive, offensive enough that Lead Belly wrote his own response to it and said, no, uh, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, wow. God bless him. Um, but yeah, so that, so, you know, throughout this song, there's a number of, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, political kind of points that are just kind of weaved in very, very uh, loosely um, that are clearly there for the reason of, of kind of the roots of this song. But, you know, for me, when I was 14, listening to this first time, you know, especially with no internet, you have no context of what that yeah. the roots of the song were. So you're just hearing this the first time you're thinking, well, these are just kind of, he's all over the place with funny satire. Almost the thing that reminded me, you're again, a child of the eighties. It kind of felt like a folk version of David Letterman. You know, this the vibe of this song with a lot of the inside jokes and satire and comedy of, you know, the Kennedy and all these just kind of things like you're inside on the jokes. And that's the, I remember the first time I heard that, I kind of felt like that. And even though this was recorded 25 years before any of that, um, it just kind of had that vibe to it, which is almost this kind of counterculture of a popular culture vibe. So I don't know, just kind of hopefully I'm going off uh, off message. but No, I see what you're talking about. Thoughts. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, for, for those too young to remember, the 80s David Letterman show did feel like that because it was so weird. And the <laughs> fact that it was broadcast on a national, you know, NBC back when there was only three, three, four channels. And yeah. the fact that, that the fact that it was tacitly approved by Johnny Carson, who was sort of like the, the classic establishment television figure uh, gave it that extra level of weird. That was just like, really? Like does, does NBC know that there's a guy who's strapping cameras to a monkey and letting it run around yeah. the studio. And yeah, there, that is, that is kind of what you feel like here is that you've got, okay, you know, you're all these other songs are so heavy and that's what you're expecting from a folk act, you know, which yeah. is what Bob Dylan was thought to be in 1962, 63. He was a folk act and he's singing about injustice and he's singing about uh, the way things should be and, and, and civil rights and, and war and like, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got this thing and, and, and on the, the album version, of course, when he talks to the, says to the point about had to sit in the back of the tub, cost a quarter on the, the you know, the lyrics here. Yeah. And it says, I had to get out quick, but of course on the record, he sticks in an interjection in the middle of his harmonica burst where he says, I had to sit in the back of the tub, cost a quarter. And then he just goes half price. And he just goes, Move <laughs> on. and you just realize he thought of it in that moment. Like he just, yeah. he just, and so you're like, wow, that's the version they put on the record is him just sort of scatting, like, and st- yeah. you know, extemporaneous, just what's ever coming out of his head, which is remarkable. I didn't, I knew about the Lead Belly. I didn't know that the Lead Belly song was a reaction to a, a previous song. I did not know that. Yeah, um, it, it gives a lot God. more because when I was digging into it, Rob, I was trying to figure out, like, the lyrics with Lead Belly are really kind of just you know, kind of silly. And mm-hmm. that was actually in hindsight, the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was it, it makes a lot more sense when you realize he's reacting to kind of a racist, uh, you know, kind of ditty with his own kind of like, Hey, you're, I'm just going to come up with silly crap, but say, Hey, we're, we're, we're free, you know, we're oh, free God. on the farm, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And it made, it gave it to me, at least it gave a little bit more insight and context into it. And just, um, you know, and that, the lead belly, the version I at least was able to hear there and they're, you know, that's pretty, Readily, the Lead Belly version with Woody Guthrie 
and Cisco Houston and Sonny Terry. I mean, clearly it was, you know, we all kind of know that's a connection to Bob in a pretty deep way, yeah. every one of those individuals. And so, you know, this was clearly, you know, of mind to him. Yeah. Uh, amazingly, I've never been able to hear a version of this from any of the coffee houses hmm. or any, you know, any of like the Gaslight tapes. Apparently he did play this at the Gaslight here and there, but I, you know, which I'm sure the, to your point, you know, the lyrics are probably vary from version to version massively from any of those. You may have just extemporaneously played it in any of the clubs, but um, this was hmm. clearly of the mind of him. Um, you know, when he, you know, was, he was doing this, I think this, this song, I think was draw came, you know, as you alluded to earlier with Oxford town, I think he did this Oxford town and hard rain in the same night in like December 62. Huh. That's interesting. Cause the, the Bob Dylan.com says it's never been played live, but as yeah. we now, as we now know, the Bob Dylan.com information is mostly right, but it's, it's yeah. there's some gaps here and there. So that's interesting. I've never, I didn't know that it was point, ever I've never been able to find it on a set list, but okay. some of the work I was digging around and people are speculating that, especially in like the late spring, you know, he had, a, I think, a uh, residency at Gaslight for a couple of weeks, at least there. I, they, there was speculation he probably played it, but they just don't have great set lists. Right. So that's, as, we, you, as we know, but yeah, you're right. It's, uh, in terms of, even with Hazel, I remember I was listening to that yesterday. I was like, wait, I, that was on uh, the last one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we learned that. Right. Right. Learned on the air. Like, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah. You um, could, you could certainly imagine him dropping this on oh, yeah. a, on that, in that kind of setting where it's loose and he's in a coffee house and, you know, and he's got, you know, and he's bip, he's uh, dropping his songs in between Woody Guthrie covers. You could imagine that he would throw this out at one point. Oh yeah, this is. I, I would yeah, I would have loved to have been there to hear it. But uh, yeah, this is kind of right out of that whole song list of the, the ones he was kind of playing around that time, right? Right. So um, especially he, as he's kind of reworking and revising them. Yeah, I mean, the next verse of is actually my favorite verse of the whole song is as well. <laughs> my telephone rang; it would not stop. It's President Kennedy calling me up. He said, "My friend Bob, what do we need to make the country grow?" I said, "My friend John Bridget Bardot, I needed Eckberg." Sophia Lauren. And then in the, the lines here, it says, put them all in the same room with Ernest Borgnine, uh, <laughs> which again, on the record, uh, he does another interjection. He says, Anita Edberg, Sophia Lauren, country will grow. And then he goes back into the harmonica beat. I love this bit because, um, you know, you're talking about, you mentioned earlier about being a child of the eighties. I'm a child of the, you know, late seventies and, and the eighties. And, I grew up with the idea that rock acts or rock musicians or musicians really in any stripe are not uh, cool with politicians. Like that's mm-hmm. the anti thing. Like you would never, you know, um, and, and uh, I mean, I know there's some, obviously there's, there's some exceptions there. And we know that like Bob was sort of uh, at the very least uh, friendly with Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter quoted Bob and stuff like that. But for the most part, music, rock musicians, especially tended to hold uh, politicians with, pretty heavy disdain uh, yeah. that they were not to be trusted in any way. And of course I'm the child of the eighties. So what are my examples? I've got Nixon, I've got Reagan, you know, I'm like, well, all right. Yeah. Okay. But I, I find it so charming that Bob in, in this context would put president Kennedy in this context, my friend, Bob, that's really very sweet, you know, like that they're, that they're chummy like that. And then my friend, John, like there's, so, I just find that very charming that he would, Look at the president, and of course, you know we, what we know what was coming uh, very soon. Uh, but but at this point, the, you know Kennedy was still the president, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, were not totally sanguine with everything that Kennedy was doing. I mean, he fought for civil rights and things like that, but there was a lot of other things that were not particularly very good. But yeah. I just found it very charming that Bob would take that tack that he would 
sort of have this sort of, I know it's a fictionalized thing or whatever, but just the idea that he would be chummy with John Kennedy is something very funny, fun to me. And then the idea that John Kennedy is turning to Bob Dylan as to what can make the country better. And of course, Bob's suggestion is get a bunch of really hot babes from other parts of the world. That'll, the country will grow. All right. I'm like, okay, I just, I find that verse just, it's, I just love it. Yeah. The, uh, same, same thing here. That was literally, you know, there, there's certain elements of the song that just grab you and that the first listen that that's your first impression. Right. And, um, and again, context matters, right. You know, it's, kind of listening to the song in the Reagan eighties, you know, and oh, there, there was such a romanticization of kind of the, um, you know, the Kennedy era. And what, one of the things and kind of looking back on in hindsight, it just feels interesting is you, you for us, you, we never knew Kennedy other, any other way than kind of the way it, it tragically ended. Yeah. Um, but listening to the song, you're kind of reminded this is of the time of Kennedy. Yep. Yep. And the, it's kind of live. It's kind of a live. It's kind of a snapshot, but it's a live feeling mm-hmm. of, of Camelot in that way of what people. To your point, you know, twenty-two-year-old folk musicians who are kind of the counterculture kind of viewed Kennedy kind of as their guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, this was just kind of that kind of reminder. And it wasn't. It wasn't a retrospective reminder. There's obviously a lot of songs you know written in the '60s later on after a lot of the just the awful tragedies happened, but this was before that, you know, this was during it. And it was kind of this living thing of kind of, Hey, this is the vibe of Bob. But then to your point, he flips it and says, okay, here's what's going on. But you know, here's my kind of wise ass response of how do we, how do we get things going? It's like, okay, yeah, I'm still 21 and viral. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Viral, I should say. Uh, And just to kind of this witty, and then the country will grow the reworked version of it. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of double entendre there. So what that can mean. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just it's just brilliant, right? It's just this simple brilliance that uh, just everything about it, it's just a totally different kind of feel for what you would have expected on the record that just the first time you hear it, um, you know, I don't know if it has, carries the weight today, but you know, certainly 30 some years ago when I first heard it, I was like, whoa, this is just, this is cool. I love the little way he sings Bridget Bardo. Bridget Bardo. He he sort of like leans in saying in a way that nobody says it. Nobody says Bardo. Bridget Bardo. You just got to say it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got definitely carrying that Midwestern kind of twang kind of purposely. And then um, at the time, I remember the first time I heard this, I knew knew who Bridget Bardo was. I obviously knew Sophia Loren was. I had no idea who Anita Ekberg was. Anita Ekberg, right. And there's no way, again, back then, there you know, you can ask your parents or whatever, but there's no real way to kind of do a lot of that work on your own very easily. Like you yeah. go to the library and look her up, but I wasn't quite that motivated, but it was more of just curiosity. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I assume she was <laughs> of, of the line of Bridget Barrow. And yeah. Right. She just, right. Yeah. 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 She was just that she's another, <laughs> another, uh, you know, famous film star from, from yeah. Europe. And, and, uh, you know, not to read too much into it, but the three of them were all of a certain pneumatic type. They all had that same kind of body. Like they're all yeah. very curvy, very busty women. So, okay. I can understand that. So he continues on. He says, well, and again, these are the lines that, that, that a lot of these lines yeah. do not match what you're going to hear. He says, well, I got a woman who sleeps on a cot. She yells and hollers and squeals a lot, licks my face and tickles my ear, bends me over and buys me beer. She's a honeymooner, a June crooner, a spoon feeder and a natural leader. <laughs> Like, what is he talking about? And this is, oh, and there ain't no use in me working so heavy. I got a woman who works on the levee, pumping that water up to her neck. Every week, she sends me a monthly check. (laughs) She's a humdinger, folk singer, dead ringer for a thingamajigger. (laughs) 
So he's having a good time here. Yeah, yeah. It's clearly I, you know, the 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 performed version of of the the first of those two verses definitely feels more like uh, it's might be referring to uh, his girlfriend at the time. The the version that's on the Bob notes definitely is a little bit off cough that track of the mm-hmm. kind of the Susan, what I what I might sense is a Susie Lorotolo reference. Um, and then verse six, which again, the album version feels much more aligned with kind of the Joan Baez kind of vibe to it than, uh, than perhaps the, the version on the website. Um, but obviously the folk singer, uh, yeah, Humdinger folk singer works all the time dynamic certainly kind of points to Joan. I like the line about every week sends me a monthly check, yeah. uh, which is, I think a, a, you know, a reference to a lot of the, the crowd, the, the Greenwich village crowd were yeah. probably on unemployment. You know, they yeah. were probably not working and they were get. it reminds me there was a, there was an offhanded reference in the um, Stanley Kubrick documentary, A Life in Pictures, where it talks about when he lived in New York and he basically hustled for, he hustled money uh, by playing chess in Central Park against certain people. And, he, you know, he won every game, but he was basically on unemployment. And that's, they said, that's what kept him alive was, you know, unemployment checks, Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured that line was, uh, you know, the reference to that. So, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Bob was squatting. Yeah. For, yeah. I mean, imagine just picking up hitchhiking to New York without a dollar. <laughs> I can't. I don't it's even. Like, I just, you might you as well do? say, you might as well say I can live on the moon. It's as removed yeah. as from what my experience is. So yeah. we continue, continues on late one day in the middle of the week. Eyes were closed. I was half asleep. I chased me a woman up the hill right in the middle of an air raid drill. Now, okay, now we're referencing things from Hard Rain. It was little Bo Peep. I jumped out of Fallout Shelter. I jumped the Beanstalk. I jumped a Ferris wheel, all of which is different on the recorded version. All of it. He talks about TV dinners. Yeah. None of it matches. Again, he's just goofing around uh and then he goes on he says now the man on the stand he wants my vote he's running for office on the ballot note he's out there preaching in front of the steeple telling me he loves all kinds of people he's eating bagels he's eating pizza he's eating chitlins he's eating bullshit now i remember i bought the bob dylan lyrics book 1962 to 1985 this giant hardcover tome that they put out have the same book right yeah and you know it was they put it out in 86 so that was you know, obviously they're like, he's not going to write any more songs after this. So the, the book is complete. And I remembered, you know, leaving through the pay. I think I got it for Christmas one year. And I remember getting to this song and seeing that line. And I was like, what? Like, you know, <laughs> what? And obviously Bob Dylan could not have said that word on a 1962 yeah. record released by Columbia. But I thought it was very interesting that it was even, they'd even bothered to write it down as if it was yeah. ever going to make it in the song. And it's the official Record, you know, it's the official copyrighted version is that line. And in the song version, he doesn't, he just drops that line and he stops it. He just says he's eating Shetlands, which again, I love. The, I mean, it's almost like it's everything you need to say about a politician in this verse eating bagels, eating pizza, eating Shetlands. He's just sucking up to everybody. Yeah. Well, and to your point, what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, this is four verses after he's just louding his, his, his friend, John, John Kennedy. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so that's what's so, because that's kind of back to that Letterman reference. I was thinking about it. It's like in one way, Hey, here's my buddy, but I'm still going to call out his bullshit. <laughs> you know, he doesn't get a free pass. You know, they, this yep. is what these guys are. Politicians are what they are. And I mean, I wish things have changed, but I'm not sure they, you know, have much. I mean, that, that world is still uh, a lot of the same. Um, and, uh, you know, in all realms, right? And so uh, it's just the nature of, that's why it's called politics. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Bob's calling it out point blank. And it kind of underscores what you were saying, kind of the musician's general 
um, yeah, to skepticism, maybe call it for the political life. And yeah. in, in, you know, four lines, he just nails it. Uh, and, and it's just, I just love the turn of phrase of he's out there preaching in front of the steeple, telling me he loves all kinds of, it's just so casual and just fluid is the way he kind of rolls with it. Yep. Uh, in a way that's just, boom. Nothing changes too. Nothing changes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's the same. So I get you this on. Oh, set me down on the television floor. I'll flip the channel to number four. Out of the shower comes a grown-up man with a bottle of hair oil in his hand. It's that greasy kid stuff. Uh, what I want to know, Mr. Football Man, is what do you know about Willie Mays and Yul Brenner, Charles DeGaulle, and Robert Louis Stevenson? Again, none of those. I think he says Willie Mays on the recorded yeah. version. But well, he talks about – Ola Tunji, which that was, like you said, that was one of those references. I was like, I have no idea what that is. I have no idea even I, what he's talking about. Uh, likewise. <laughs> he, uh, Ola Tunji was, uh, is a, a kind of dug, dug in, you know, he's a very famous uh, African drummer who was uh, both a political activist, obviously, and a musician, and uh, uh, kind of very instrumental. It's, it's incidentally, um, you know, again, this was recorded, what, in late 62? Yeah, uh, was that live version, and he name drops MLK and Olatunji in the same verse, <laughs> and then eight months later he's on stage with Olatunji was also at the march in Washington. Wow! So he's at he. I mean, this is just kind of crazy, right? You know, it's like uh, name dropping these guys. Next thing you know, he's opening for Martin Luther King's greatest moment, and uh, you know, with Olatunji sitting next to him, it's just it's really it's just remarkable. And they're twenty one years old, so um, but. The, the 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 interesting thing about kind of who he names drops on the album is again much more political than kind of the the written work version, right? Yeah, um, because it's you know clearly carrying one element, and one of the things I was digging around on it, you know, it's clearly. I mean, ironically, this is a little bit of a put down to um, you know a spokesmanship, <laughs> a celebrity spokesmanship, which is ironic given Bob's openness to being being uh, willing to do that in his later <laughs> life. Right, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, but then he kind of calls it out in a way of saying, Hey, you know, these, you know, the hair products back in that day and age were, you know, primarily, uh, meant, you know, athletes pitching stuff to white kids. Right. Yeah. And uh, so that's why he was calling out kind of the African-American athletes and Martin Luther King and all the Um, uh, but incidentally, the, um, uh, the version with Yul Brenner uh, also gives, you know, Larry David would be happy because he's also giving a shout out to the, you know, the bald community <laughs> and saying the hair products aren't going to help them either. <laughs> so, uh, I never even thought about it. I never even made I just connection. came up with that this morning because I was, I saw somewhere, I never really, I was always kind of, I didn't realize what the connection with, you know, where it was, whether it was trying to be, but it, where, where he was going with the, 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 um, with the Willie Mays and Martin Luther King. And then I kind of found that and then I realized, okay, but that's the one he wanted to go with, but he also, it was kind of originally, I think just really kind of flip of saying, Hey, your products don't work for everybody. Huh. Um, you okay. know, and whether it's, whether you're African-American or whether you're balls. Interesting. All right. That, yeah. that never made amazing. I've never made that connection before. So yeah, it makes total sense. So, <laughs> and then so, at the, one last thing from just not even from the lyrics, but at the ends of, I think it's verse eight, and nine, and the, and the album version, which is again where I was kind of talking to you earlier, where he just the pace of the song just gets going, is he lets out after each of the end of both verses, he gives out like a hua. Yeah, the first <laughs> one's kind of a mild one, and then the, after this verse, I think it was where he just goes full full on. Yep, and yep. you're just Whoa. like jumping on the. Yeah, it's like you're just jumping on the train whistles going. You're on with him, and it's just that's where it's like boom. 
Uh, that was, I just remember the first time you heard that. It was just, whoa, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we get the penultimate verses. Well, the funniest yeah. woman I've ever seen was the great granddaughter of Mr. Clean. She takes about 15 baths a day. Wants me to grow up. Now here the line. He says, wants me to grow a cigar on my face. She's a bit heavy. Now when he sings it, she wants, wants me to grow a, what does he say? What's me a beard on my face? She's uh, insane. Mustache. mustache. Me to grow a mustache on, on my, my face. face. She's, She's insane. insane. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. obviously Bob would feel very comfortable growing a mustache in not too many more years. Past us. <laughs> uh, but so there's that. And then they finally, it wraps up with, well, ask me while I'm drunk all the time. It levels my head and eases my mind. I just walk along and stroll and sing. I see better days and I do better things. I catch dinosaurs. I make love to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor. Catch hell from Richard Burton. What a way to end this record. It's with, I make love to Liz Taylor and catch hell from Burton. Like, I remember when I first got this record, I'm like, really? That's the end of the record? Is that? Uh, All right. Okay. Well, so incidentally, you you, you might be aware of this. um, That last verse, not the the Liz Taylor part, per se, but prior to that, um, you know, his take, um, you know, whether he says, I see better days and I do better things. Um, incidentally got a little bit of air cover, uh, from, from Christopher Ricks, who I'm sure many listeners are aware of his, um, you know, sure. his, his passion for Bob, um, and, uh, kind of talking about, you know, he's done a lot of work over the years with Bob with the use of cliches, um, and you know, how Bob's kind of reworked this from, obviously I've seen better days, which is a pretty common kind of turn of phrase. And kind of twisted it in a, in a positive, optimistic-looking way, um, saying, I see better days. And then, I, then even amplifying it a bit and saying, I do better things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, really kind of taking it one level further. Uh, but then again, turns it you know, into you know, a little bit of a kind of a joking irony with saying, I see better days and do better things. And then make love to Elizabeth Taylor. So like, <laughs> that's what he's doing better. But th- that was uh, – Ricks had spent some time years back. I remember – I can't find where I first read it. But I, I, I vividly remember because this is a song you don't – figure is going to get a lot of uh you know intense literary criticism from the likes yeah. of Chris Ricks. but he did kind of point out even kind of uh songs like this that are just kind of a, almost like a talking blues folk song you know they're some of bob's brilliance you know shows up here yeah yeah <laughs> and of course bob would be eventually become friends with elizabeth taylor we know that they would, <laughs> they would i wonder if she ever knew about this song I wonder if she uh, ever knew that this song existed, that he ever said that on her. I mean, it, it had to have gotten to her at some point, right? I mean, I would think. Yeah. So. Well, that, this was also, I, you know, I don't know enough of her marital history. I know her and Richard Burton were married and divorced like two or three times. I don't know where this sat in the middle of that <laughs> arc, um, but I'm guessing it wasn't at the end. I think there was still another marriage or two in front of them. So that was a whole kind of another irony to it. Again, listening to it 30 years later, right? That's so, just, yeah. Yeah, it was always, it was, it's your point. It's, um, it both, it's just a really funny, uh, kind of somewhat obnoxious way to end the album. And it just <laughs> kind of makes you laugh, and, which, which you needed. You know, this was, this album, again, carries so much uh, intellectual and emotional weight to it that you just kind of need something just to kind of ease you up a bit. Yeah. Now he did, of course, an I Shall Be Free number 10 mm-hmm. on another side. And back when I was uh, buying Bob albums and, and learning about him, I sort of assumed that this was like a, a kind of just thing that he did, like that there would be more I Shall, uh, there were, there were going to be more <laughs> I Shall Be Free's across his career, that this was like a, a almost like a, um, like a, like a Mad Libs kind of thing that he would return yeah. to. And it would like, oh, well, maybe on other records there's going to be an I Shall Be Free number 74. I was already, I already knew 
that he didn't yeah. follow numbering conventions. I already knew that. You know, there, weren't, <laughs> there weren't nine other I shall be freeze in between these two. But I just and then but no, he didn't. Like he did. He stopped with these. Basically, yeah. it was a, it was that one. And he, you know, he. I think he got away from the whole idea of just tossing off these little comedic ditties uh, on these records and and moving on. And and but this. For how much of a goof this is, and for how long it is, I mean, God, look how many lyrics we just quoted. I mean, my God, <laughs> um, this thing holds up really well. I still find it very fun to listen to. It doesn't feel like it's five minutes. You know, I'm not. It's like a murder most foul. It's like you're like, wow, did 17 yeah. minutes just go by? It, this thing doesn't feel <laughs> for for something as silly as this. You would think that being almost five minutes would make it deadly. Cause you would just be like, I'm like, all right already. You know, you're having a good time yeah. recording this. I'm not having that much fun listening to it, uh, which, <laughs> which I think some of the songs on another side suffer from. Uh, but, but this still remains very charming. I still listen to this song uh, quite a bit considering it is such a weird, goofy little toss off. And I think it shows enormous creative confidence to end the record with this song, especially when, if he had wanted to end it on a lighter note, he could have ended it with Karina, Karina, Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe even honey just allow me one more chance you know but to, to end it on this just again i keep using the word goof to end it on this thing that he's doing is just says that this kid is he's got some balls on him you know this guy you know and it's it's remarkable that it holds up as well as it does and it's it's a darn shame that it's never as far as we know ever been played live uh of course as we say this he might be preparing to bring it out live <laughs> next year when he returns on tour <laughs> yeah no, again nothing nothing he does would ever surprise any of nope. us and that's what's part of the passion right is yep. the constant reinvention and uh you know kind of uh rebuilding of who he is and uh you know that that would it'd be interesting to hear i, I gotta say i uh, you know when i first went to go see him this was one of those that you didn't expect to hear but would be great to you know you know, always you know his old tour list there's always kind of a few things weaved in especially in those late 80s and early 90s shows when he do the little mini acoustic sets um, you're always hoping you know, one of your kind of personal favorite nuggets would show up. And I, I was never that optimistic. I had enough of a sense that this was a pretty, you know, a, not just a deep cut. This is a double deep cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I probably wasn't going to hear it, but uh, it would certainly be fun, fun to, to do it, especially given to your point, you know, there's a, a lot of lyric intensity just in terms of how long and how much it is um to kind of spit it out it would probably be a lot of work but uh it's, it's a fun <laughs> listen um it, it feels again in some ways like a time capsule that's just a joy to kind of re- to revisit absolutely so and wow brian we've spent almost an hour on i shall be free that's you never know with these bob songs some songs that, that have a lot in them and like you know we kind of i'll do a show and we're like oh half hour's good and then other <laughs> other songs where you're like well this is kind of a little this will be 10 minutes and then here we are an hour later. Yeah, well, there's, there's, about a lot, be free. there's a lot to chew, and there's a decent amount of history to the song that, again, I'd never, you know, even until now, I fully didn't appreciate, even as somebody who's liked this song for a long time, until I kind of dug into it and realized, hey, there's this whole backstory, you know, with a couple of der- derivations of it. And Bob kind of following his classic kind of coffeehouse, uh, you know, what he did on many occasions, kind of borrowing tunes and themes and just reworking them for his own purposes was, was literally it here, too, but doing it in a very different way. Uh, that's fun and clever. Absolutely. So, well, Brian, thank you so much for, for coming on, man. Yeah, I said, I love speaking to new Bob fans. I love when people reach out to me to, to be on the show. So this was just a blast. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate uh, the chance to share, uh, to share some thoughts and stories. Where can people find you on the internet? 
Uh, I've got a Bob focused Twitter account called, uh, I think the handle is bird that flew one B I R D T H A T F L E W one. Um, and I'm sure people can get the reference there. Um, <laughs> and still feel free to find me. I'd love to follow you back and, uh, kind of keep the Bob chatter alive. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Brian. And of course, if you want to follow this show, you just go to the website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to pod Dylan over on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast. And there you're going to lock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Henry Bernstein, Max Hutzel, and Sebastian Krug for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Well, it took me a woman late last night I was three-fourths drunk, she looked all right Till she started peeling off her onion gook She took off her wig, said, how do I look? I was high-flying, bare-naked At the window, 